Hey everyone, uh, welcome back to Software Social. I am so excited to have my friend Adam Palazzi here today. It's actually Adam's first ever podcast interview, which I was really shocked when I just learned that because Adam is an exited founder of a piece of software that he built over 10 years, learned to code throughout the process, and is just an awesome guy. So welcome to Software Social, Adam. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you for the intro. Appreciate it. So let's start out in the beginning. Let's wind the clock back to 10 years ago. And you were a guitar teacher for children, that's right? Yeah, that was that was my introduction to, well, that, that was my first business that I started was uh, I was a guitar teacher and I got fully booked as a guitar teacher very early on. It took me you know, a couple of years. I started teaching sort of straight out of high school in schools. And within a couple of years, I was fully booked. And I just sort of had this realization of like, this is, this is it. Like I, now that I've, I'm fully booked with my teaching, like there's not really any further that I can go with this thing apart from trying to start a business. Or I, I, I always knew that I wanted to do something more than that. And I just didn't know quite what, what it was. And so, yeah, it, it started from that, me just wanting to build something more than just being a guitar teacher. And so... Once I got fully booked, I started hiring some other guitar teachers to take up some of the waiting lists that I had. And um, then it just sort of grew out from there over, yeah, like about 10 years. It took a long time, but it, yeah, it sort of grew fairly organically. But through the process, I, as we were building the business, I was looking for software to, to run the business on. And it just sort of evolved into me becoming the person who wrote all that. I think I, I was always interested in it. So, yeah, it felt like a fairly natural path, as much as it might seem a bit strange to go from guitar teacher to software developer. So you started out as a guitar teacher and throughout the process of that realized you you, you could use some software to, to run it better. I'm curious. So you started the business, the guitar instruction business 10 years ago. At what point did the software like come alive? Like, what do you start playing around with trying to build something? Uh, it started fairly early on. So as soon as I started hiring other teachers, it just got messy really quickly. Like it, music teaching is, it's just a very uh, labor intensive business. So we had lots of people going in different directions and there's just a lot of communication needed to happen in terms of who taught what student, was the student absent, and trying to keep track of all of these lessons that were happening by different people in different locations got really hard. Like at the start, we were just literally emailing Excel spreadsheets around between each other. And it doesn't take many teachers before that just becomes unworkable. So pretty soon I was kind of looking for things to do. And I started going down the path of like automations and stuff. And, and there wasn't really, there was none, none of the really good no code tools that exist now were around back then. It was just, it was a really different place. And a lot of the really great SaaS products that are around that I probably could have leveraged didn't exist yet either. So there kind of just wasn't, either that or I, I just couldn't find it. You know, it, it was it was hard to find the right sort of software to run that business on. And it's it's also, it's a very niche business, you know, because we had, so we ran music lessons in primary schools. So we had lots of teachers going to different locations and the teachers had different skills. So it meant that if you were a guitar teacher, but we had a drum student at that school, then we couldn't pay you up with that lesson. It wasn't like a hairdresser where you could have any hairdresser take any clients, you know, I guess, depending on you know, regular clients and things like that. But it feels like a lot of other businesses, there's a bit more flexibility. Whereas with what we were doing, it was it's so niche that no one had really gone out and solved that problem yet. 
And so I, I spoke to a software development company about it and sort of pitched them this idea and said, I, I think this is what I need to run my business. And I, I outlined everything. I gave them the full, the whole box and dice. And they went away and they came back with a proposal and they said, yep, we've done the numbers. We think it'll be about $300,000 to build that piece of software for you. And I don't know, I, I was 24 running this tiny little music school at the time and just sort of went, okay, well, that's com- well and truly above my budget. Like that's not even in the ballpark of something that I could consider. So I think what I'm going to do, I'm going to try and build the first little version of this because I've been playing around with FileMaker and a few other little sort of low code sort of tools. for, And so I knew I could sort of cobble something together. So I'm going to put together the first version of this that'll get us to a couple of years. And then the business is going to grow. We're going to be able to afford that $300,000 bill. I'm going to bring these people on and we're going to build this amazing, amazing piece of software eventually. And over the next few years, I just sort of got further and further down that rabbit hole of writing the software. And the, the software that we ended up building for the business just sort of got more and more complex over time to the point where by the time I sold the business, we were running everything through this thing. So it started as a, a FileMaker um, product. But then there's, you can run like PHP, um, there's a PHP API that you can use to uh, run off a FileMaker database. So we had a whole PHP front end for it and stuff that we that I built out. And it turned into this giant thing that, I mean, it probably, yeah, if I added up the number of hours I spent on it, it probably did end up costing that $300,000 or more. Um, it's just that I wasn't actually paying that money because I was doing it myself. So it got there in the end, but that was it sort of just turned into my my little school of, you know, to learn how to code and to do it in a real production environment because there were actual music teachers in schools where if the software went down for a day, no one knew who they were teaching. So like it had real world, you know, repercussions. So it was kind of, it was a pretty good trial by fire, but I look back at like the stuff that I was doing and just shake my head. I mean, like, yeah, I think anyone who's gone through that process of learning to code will tell you they have that experience of looking back at something that they wrote years ago and just going, wow, I really had no idea back then, did I? But I think I really had no idea. <laughs> like, I, I didn't really have any friends who wrote code either. And and I didn't have any exposure to like the online communities and stuff that I now, I didn't even know that they existed because I, I was coming from this musician guitar teacher world. So everyone that I knew was a musician and I, I don't know like whether there wasn't as much access to that sort of stuff 10 plus years ago when I was first getting into it, or I was just naive and didn't even kind of know to go looking for it because I was coming from such a different place. But I, I literally figured out how to do kind of everything from scratch, like, you know, writing my own authentication and stuff, which, you know, you look at it now and you just go, why, why would you ever do that? And to run it in production like that, like it, you know, yeah, gee, it probably wasn't the best idea. It worked and it it got the job done. And I I learned so much from it. You know, I think that was the the really big takeaway for me was just like literally Googling, how do you make a, a website with a login? And starting from that and then, and it was just this cobbled together PHP mess of, you know, bits and pieces that I'd figured out over years and years as I was adding to it. So yeah, when people tell stories about like looking back and shaking their head at at previous code that they've written, I feel like I go, yeah, you should see some of the code that I, (laughs) that I pushed out when I was first getting started. And um, yeah, it's properly embarrassing. (laughs) I think that's a really relatable experience. So there's just so much in there. Um, 
two things I, I want to I want to start with. The first one is you mentioned that you had this idea to build something after you were going through this experience of sending spreadsheets back and forth. And you know, Patrick McKenzie has said that if you can find an industry or business activity where people are emailing spreadsheets back and forth to one another, that is a really good opportunity for software. I love that. That's a great description for it. Because I mean, that's, and that was, you know, especially 10 odd years ago, that's how everyone in the industry was doing it. That was the only way because they're just, like I said, it, it's pretty niche and there just wasn't anything that was going to do what we needed it to do. So yeah, that was kind of the genesis of that idea. It was just driven by self-need. You know, I needed it to be able to run my business more efficiently. Yeah. And then in turn, that that made your business itself, you know, run better, but also, you know, more attractive to someone else. So the other thing I heard in there was that this theme, this broader theme that's going on of software enabling non-technical physical businesses, which is a, you know, you may have heard that as, you know, software is eating the world, but this is something that I know, like Tyler Tringas of Calm Company Fund, for example, is really bullish on lately is people with this subject matter expertise in a specific non-technical field and then building software for that. Like when that comes to mind, it was like software for snow plowing businesses. Very, very niche. And as you see, and you said it was kind of niche as a, a sort of a sheepish way, but that's actually being recognized as a really valuable opportunity because as you said, there, there wasn't any software out there for running a music school business and, you know, who's attending the classes, what lessons are they getting? You know, a drum teacher is not interchangeable with a clarinet player, right? You know, so like, how do you make this, you know, massive sort of many to many problem work? It's really, really interesting opportunities there now that that people are seeing. It is for sure. And I think the thing that has probably changed for me a little bit over the years, like since then, so like you said before, like I've, I've since sold that business. So I sold the music school and the software all as a, a package together. And I think the thing that's changed for me since then is just maybe looking a little more carefully at the industry before I jump into something like that, like a 10-year project on something, because it was great, but the number of music schools out there who are at the size where they need the software that I was writing and profitable enough that they can afford to pay a reasonable subscription license to, to have access to that software is not that big. There's just, the, you know, it, mm. music schools is one niche that I, I was sort of targeting, but then my business was even more niche than that because we were actually running in the schools. And that just, the extra layer of complexity there was the fact that everyone was in different physical locations. And so you couldn't necessarily get from one school to another in a, in a given period of time. And so it was more analogous with a music school that has six different campuses around the place versus everyone running out of a single building, which is more often how music schools run. And one of the mistakes that I definitely made with the software, not so much with the business, but with the software was that it was so heavily customized to that business that it didn't really fit other music schools unless they were running with like the exact same business model as what we were doing and so i think that was one of the really big takeaways for me was like okay writing great software and building a good business around that is is great but unless you think you can actually expand that customer base out to the point that you know to to proper scale then you might be 
you might be sort of chasing a bit of a dead end that, and I think that was, that was sort of the point that I got to with the software specifically for that one. Like the, the music school itself was a, was a great little business, but that software, you know, when I sold it, I was initially thinking I was going to rewrite it from the ground up as a separate software package that was going to be more generalized for music schools. Um, and then I've, I've since gone in different directions and, and done other stuff since then. So that, that idea didn't really end up working out the way that I thought it was going to, because like I said, I think, I think it was probably not the right industry for, for that thing. Yeah. That, I mean, that, that note on industry is really important, right? There's a famous quote that, you know, you can take an amazing team plus a bad, or, you know, perhaps you could say, you know, a low volume or low ability to pay or limited, a bad market market wins. You take an average team in a good market market wins. Um, I want to say that's Charlie Munger, but I'm not quite sure. But, uh, you know, more in our world, Justin Jackson talks about this in terms of riding the wave, right? And you could be a really good surfer, but if there is only a very small wave, that wave is not going to take you very far. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. I, I love that analogy. And I think that was one of the deciding things for me in realizing that I needed to sell the business and move on was because I was spending so much time writing software for this one little music school that I was like, what am I doing? Like the, the, one of the great advantages of software is the leverage that you get that you can write it once and sell it over and over again. And I'm literally spending hundreds and hundreds of hours writing this incredibly complex software that one little music school is only ever going to use. And I think that there's more than that, that I could be doing with this. So yeah, that was that was kind of part of the reason for me in deciding that, okay, it's time to, you know, I think I've done what I needed to with that business and it's probably time for me to start looking for someone else who can take it to the next level. Yeah, so so let's dive into that. Selling the business, both so both the music school and the software. So what what I find amazing about this is that this is an in-person business and you sold it after COVID happened, but in the thick of the the chaos of the early days of it, take us back there and, and talk about how you know how um, how you went from this realization that maybe you wanted to do more to like so you had that thought that you wanted to sell it and you wanted to do something else. What did you do? So I I sort of had that idea in the back of my head for a while that it was it, I was probably getting to the point where I was ready to move on. And it was the, the end of the school year is Christmas time for us. So we want to have Christmas family holiday. I was talking to my wife and I said, I, I think, I think I'm ready to go. I think it's, you know, I think I'm done with junior rockers. And she said, okay, well, what are you going to do? And I said, I, I think I want to do this software thing full time. I'm not exactly sure how it's going to play out, but you know, I think that's the direction I want to go. So we got back from the holiday and I, um, my car was in being serviced. So I remember I was in the back of an Uber going to a business broker to go and talk to them about selling junior rockers. And I decided it was finally, it had been 10 years and I was going to put business on the market. I was sitting in the back of an Uber playing on my phone and just scrolling through Twitter or something. And I remember hearing this news article on the radio come on, like on ABC radio about this new virus and somewhere in China and something weird sort of going on. And it sort of, you know, when something just catches your attention and you sort of go, huh, that was a bit weird. And got to the business broker's office, had this meeting, talked about putting the business up for sale and stuff, got home. And that night at dinner was talking to my wife about it and said, had this funny experience today, sitting in an Uber going to the business broker's office. 
and heard this news article. And you know what it felt like? It felt like the start of every like global pandemic contagion movie where someone's in a bar and there'll be a TV screen up in the in the background and there'll be this like random news article about a weird virus somewhere that's just come up. And I was like, it felt like that. And then we, you know, we both just forgot about it. And then, yeah, Harriet, lo and behold. They only knew. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we were in the movie. <laughs> I mean... You know, I mean, no one knew what was what was coming at that point. So I literally was listing it, listing my my music school business that was running lessons in primary schools as COVID was just sort of taking hold. And so within six or eight weeks, you know, everything was going pretty crazy, and the schools here in in Melbourne were starting to shut down. And so, I mean, once that happened, you know, we managed to switch some lessons to online, but essentially the business came to a grinding halt very quickly. And as that was happening, we had an interested buyer came along and started a conversation. And it was one of those times where he could have come in and gone, hey, I can really take advantage of the situation here. I know you're in trouble. Like it's, you know, it's pretty plain to see. Um, And, you know, to his credit, he was very kind of honorable about the way that he went about the whole process. And it was so such early days that no one really knew what was going to happen with COVID and with the schools shutting. I mean, when the, the, the first time the schools shut here in Melbourne, it was just before the end of the term one school holidays and the schools shut two weeks early and everyone went, okay, instead of school holidays being two weeks, we're going to make it four weeks. Surely that's long enough, like four weeks of no schools. Like that's that's a long time for schools to be shut. Who could possibly imagine it being any longer than that? So we're going to come back at the start of term two and everything will just go back to normal. You know, that's, I'm sure that's what's going to happen. And so when we signed the sale contract, we put a couple of clauses in there that basically said, okay, there's going to be a 12 month period where both the buyer and myself are going to take some of the risk here because no one really knows what's going to happen with schools and COVID and things. So we're going to put some clawbacks in the price and things like that so that if things do go really badly, the buyer will get some back. But there's also a reasonable floor in there so that I've got some comfort to know that I'm going to be walking away from this 10-year project with at least something that I can be happy with. And look, I think think the sign that the deal was well struck was that at the end of the 12 months, we probably both felt a bit ripped off, but also pretty happy that we we probably just got away with it. You know, so I think if it had have been six months later, I just couldn't have sold the business. Like it, it was stopped by that point. So I think I got very lucky that I got to, you know, meet that buyer when I did and sell the business. And it all went down very, you know, considering everything, I feel very lucky about it all. So yeah, um, certainly, I don't know, certainly an interesting experience going through it and a pretty tough, stressful 12 months while. I was trying to kind of transition the business across to this new person who was going to be taking it, taking over stewardship of this business and trying to grow it and take it to the next phase whilst we were shut. Like I couldn't like, the, you know, when you're doing a business handover, you're supposed to be like teaching the new owner all about how your systems and processes run. And I mean, I could tell him about them, but I couldn't show him because we couldn't actually do anything. It was just a crazy kind of experience. That sounds like a yeah a really really weird experience to to, to have of, of selling the business and yeah there's supposed to be this period when when you're transitioning but you've, you you kind of just show them sort of what it, what it looks like without anything there. You mentioned that you ended that 12 month period feeling kind of ripped off and like I'm curious if you were to sell a business again 
is there anything that you would do differently or that you would make sure to do in the process of selling? Don't sell a, a service business in the middle of a global pandemic. I would highly recommend that. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I think the handover was far too long. I mean, it sort of had to be because because we were we had these clauses in the contract around the risk because we just didn't know. So that was that was a part of the the way that we structured the deal effectively was to say, all right, we're, we're going to give ourselves a fair bit of runway here because there's a chance that things do pick up for six or eight weeks, which then you know potentially gives me a really great earn out, and then the business falls in a heap and the buyer gets left with you know a shell sort of thing. So the the, th- the thinking there was that, hey, 12 months is probably long enough that we both have a reasonable chance to kind of make a good go of this in whichever way things are going to go. And then the averages will work out over that 12 month period and we'll, you know, we'll end up with a fair kind of price at the end of it. The reality though, was that doing a business handover for 12 months, like when you, I don't know, I guess it's different for everyone. But for me, after 10 years of building and running this business, like it was my baby, I put so much into this thing. And then realizing that I was done, like I, I was ready to walk away. I, that was the point in my life where I was like, okay, I'm moving on emotionally from that business now, but now I'm still tied to it for another 12 months, trying to kind of make it continue to run and grow and, and set it up well for the buyer because I don't want to hand over a shell. But at the same time, I've also got to have one eye on, well, what am I going to do in 12 months? Because I kind of, you know, this is all I've ever done is running this business. And I you know, I want to have this big career change and be moving into full-time doing software development. So if I'm not significantly concentrating on that, then I'm going to put myself really behind the eight ball when that 12 months is up too. And so that was really tough. It was too long. If it had been three months, I, I could have said to myself, you know, it's 12 weeks, you just need to concentrate on on doing the handover, giving the business everything you can for that one last push. And then you can go and do your own thing after that. 12 months was just such a long time that by the end of it, I was so kind of emotionally divorced from the business that I was having a really hard time actually giving it what it needed. So I think that's, you know, that was one of the big takeaways from me. It was just too long, that handover period. Yeah, I think, I mean, that makes sense that it was really hard for you to slog through it for that long. And, you know, you, you mentioned the business was was your baby. And when I've talked to other founders about this, uh, you know, conversation we had with Danielle Simpson of Feedback Panda, Arvid Call's wife and co-founder, you know, she, she mentioned how there was like this grieving process that needed to happen when you sell the business and, you know... For a long time, you were, you know, you were for 10 years, you were Adam of junior rockers and then you sell the business. And then it's like, okay, not only is there all of this work to do to sell the business, but there's this internal uh, handover that goes to, so to speak for, from, okay, well, who am I now? Especially for, for us founders who, who tie up so much of our energy and identity, you know, often to an unhealthy extent, myself included, um, in our businesses. And then to be going through that grieving, that like loss of an identity at the same time that you're also still attached to it as well. It's really difficult. Yeah. And, and then even to, I think for me, I got to the end of that grieving process and it was kind of like, okay, I've done that. I've grieved and, and now I'm over it and I'm ready to move forward with my life. But hang on, I've still got six months, I've still got nine months to go of, you know, having to actually be hands-on involved in what's happening here. So that was tough because I think 
you know, I felt like I wasn't able to do everything I could have for the other people in that business, you know, because that, that was a part of the reason for wanting to sell it too, because people, you know, there were other employees in that business who I felt like deserved to have a boss who was really invested in what was happening with the business that they were all working on. And, you know, by the end, that that wasn't me. I had one eye on the future to the other things that I was going to be doing. And so I was like, hey, you guys deserve better than this. You know, let's go and find someone who can be that person. So, yeah, that, you know, it, it was a tough situation. And having COVID piled on, on top of that as well just made it tougher. So, you know, look, it is what it is. I still feel lucky that I got the result I did. Um, it was, yeah, it was just a, a, a tough time. Yeah, I mean, and, and you're in Australia, which has, you know, had some of the longest lockdowns in the world. And to be going through that grieving and transition alone, basically, you know, even if you're talking to your employees on Zoom or, or whatnot, like, I, I, I imagine it was probably a bit of a relief when those 12 months were up. It was, it was a big relief. Um, and yeah, that's, one of my regrets was that like I had to tell my main managers that I was leaving, that I was leaving over Zoom, you know, like there was like just the timing of it. And yeah, the lockdowns in Melbourne, there was no way to catch up and talk to people face to face. And, you know, especially for like my, my main manager who was effect who had basically been running the business for me for a few years at that point, he and I were really close and, you know, I, I still consider him a good friend. And um, it was really, really disappointing to have, to not be able to like, go and catch up with him and say, Hey man, you know, we need to talk. He's like, Hey, let's, let's jump on a zoom call and, you know, pretend like we, we're not, we're strangers. I don't know. It's um, yeah. A weird, a weird experience. Yeah. Not getting that kind of closure that you might get from being able to see someone in person and, you know, hug it out or, or. Uh... We, we did eventually. So after the 12 months was up, he and I went out and we finally got to actually sit down at a pub and have a beer and a, a meal together. And it was really nice. Um, you know, it was really funny. Our, our relationship changed a lot over that 12 month period. I think one of the, one of my other really big learnings from selling the business and having that really long, that long handover period. Like I think if there was going to be a positive out of that, the one thing that I did get from it was I was more myself with my employees in that 12 months than I had been in the whole 10 years leading up to it. I've always had this thing of I'm the boss. I like, I need to be, I need to take myself seriously. I, you know, not, not like, I think I've always had this attitude of like, if I'm going to be the boss, then someone needs to be, you know, thinking seriously about what's happening here and, you know, being very considered in what they're doing and always, always having a bit of, professional distance between me and everyone else in the business because it just seemed like that was like the the boss thing to do that you should I don't I don't know I'm not I'm sort of struggling to find the right words to describe the the feeling of needing to kind of be disassociated a little bit from them can I try this whole thing again I feel like it's coming across really badly and so it's really good actually I I think you're hitting on something that it that is hard to express which is like this feeling of of responsibility right like you you're the one responsible for their income you're the one responsible for making sure they have a place to work six months from now you're responsible for making sure all these kids learn how to play flute and cello and everything else right like there's so much responsibility that you carry as a founder as you know to your employees and and to your customers and 
that is a heavy burden to carry. And, and I think, you know, people in, in general, you know, beyond, you know, the sort of indie world talk about founder loneliness, because that is a really big burden to carry. And I can see why you would feel like you needed to keep that distance between you and your employees, because, you know, maybe you felt like you had to, you had to project stability and, and confidence and, you know, and, and it's, I think it's really only being recognized in the past couple of years, how helpful vulnerability is for leading a business, you know, all of Brene Brown's work, but that feels very, very new. And definitely the longstanding tradition of business owners is that you have to project this. Yeah, I guess it's just this calmness or the, or this confidence and it's, not authentic for, I would say, probably the vast majority of people to be somewhat, you know, stoic and just carrying all the weight of, of that themselves, right? And so it sounds like even though the your big moment of liberation was when the business was finally sold, your earnout was finally done, like you were done, done. But like, once the paperwork was signed, and it was no longer your responsibility really like you almost kind of became an employee for 12 months sure you had a very bizarre sort of employment contract that nobody else had that held all you know these conditions in it right but like you could just enjoy the the business you had built and the the people you built it with in a way that you like you couldn't really before you built it thank you for putting into words a thing that i just couldn't quite get out but that's exactly what it was like yeah and it was you really hit the nail on the head. Like it was once the paperwork was signed and I told everyone that I was leaving, it was like this veil sort of came down and I was like, okay, I don't have to pretend to be the boss anymore. I can actually just talk to these people. And, and it changed over the 12 months. And I think that was the one positive that came out of it being such a long time was that it actually gave me time to realize that this transition was happening with my relationship with the other people in the business and to, to actually enjoy it. And to start to go with it a bit and go, I'm allowed to, you know, be completely honest with them about the fact that this is really hard at the moment. Like COVID is making it really, really difficult to run this business. And I can sound emotional. Like there were, you know, there were times like, you know, you spent 10 years building a business and then you watch it all just crumble overnight. And it's really emotional. You know, there were times when I'd be like in tears on the phone to these people kind of going, I I actually don't know what we're going to do here. Like we're, you know, we all managed to kind of find a way to come together and make it work and, and get through, get through that 12 month period. Um, and, and, you know, beyond for everyone else, just obviously not for me in terms of the hands-on involvement, but it was really refreshing and really nice. And I actually, I said it to Dan one day towards the end of the 12 months, how I felt like our relationship had really changed and how much I was really enjoying actually just feeling like I could be myself with him. And it was really funny because he actually said the same thing back. He said, you know what? I actually felt like I've been able to be more myself with you as well, because I've always tried to be like, no, no, you're the boss. And I should try and, you know, be very responsible around Adam. And it was kind of like, he felt the same thing from the other side of it. And we both just, our working relationship got so much better when we just dropped the act and started being ourselves with each other. It was it was kind of really great and kind of really sad that we'd spent so many years not doing that because we were both putting on this act that we thought we had to for each other. And it wasn't until the end that we kind of realized 
you don't have to do that. You're actually allowed to just be yourself and be vulnerable and no one's going to hold it against you if you're the boss and you say, I don't know what to do today, guys. Like, help me out, <laughs> you know, which which I did and they did help me out and it was the best. That's amazing. Like, it, I mean, it sounds like you you came so far with this team and, and as people and, you know, I wonder, so, you know, now, you know, you are uh, a consultant and I wonder if, you know, you start another software business at some point, do you think you would be more vulnerable with them from the beginning? Like that last year of junior rockers was. That's definitely my goal. And I'm trying to be like that with consulting clients too. It's funny because I mean, it's a different relationship with consulting clients. So I think, I think you probably do have to maintain a certain element of, you know, no, I do know what I'm doing and I'm in control and, and things are good. But I've also just been trying to be honest about, you know, things in my life and what's going on and try and just open up a bit more about who I am and, and not just be a robot who writes code, you know, and I think that that has been really really nice that you know the people i've been able to work with just as a pure consulting agreement type thing i've actually gotten to know a lot better because of that because i've been consciously trying to you know break down that wall as much as possible as much as you know i think you can look there's there's definitely still that sense with the consulting that it needs to have you know something to it yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, I used to work at an agency. That was my first job out of college. And there, there's definitely this, you know, this air professionalism and like, yes, I can actually do the thing that you have paid me to do that I told you in the proposal <laughs> I could do, right? But then, you know, also being able to be a bit more real with people can be liberating. And and perhaps, you know, that's more possible when, uh, you know, when you're running a company. Um so I don't, I don't want to pressure you. I'm sure you get this all the time, but I'm curious, like, ha- have you thought about what your, your next business might be? Or are you, you know, are, are you kind of still taking some time to sort of just enjoy the consulting and, and, and enjoy that lack of, uh, for a better way of putting it, sort of the burden of, you know, running a larger business? No, I, I have put a fair bit of thought into it. And I've actually started working with a a really good mate of mine on a new business that we're putting together at the moment. We're sort of, we're just getting ready to sort of start putting out um, some of the material for it. So this is one of my best mates in the world is a sleep scientist. And he came to me a while ago with a proposal for a a product that he wanted to build um, together. And essentially, it's a platform for people with sleep apnea to manage their treatments and you know get better outcomes from their therapy. And so he pitched me on this idea, and we sort of started talking about it and throwing some ideas around. And yeah, so when when the consulting work, uh, when I was trying to balance out the consulting work and decide, well, how much of that do I want to do, and how much do I want to be putting into exploring other ideas and things. I made the decision that, yeah, I, I want to get back to running my own business. The, I love the consulting and it's great, but it's after having run your own business for such a long period of time, it's, you know, consulting is effectively working for someone else. You're, you're writing code that someone else is going to use to run their business. And, and that's great. I just, you know, for me, I feel like I'm ready to get back to doing my own thing again. And this seemed like a really interesting opportunity. So we've been working on it for about six months now. And like I said, we're, we're sort of just, we're sort of getting to the end of a, a beta testing phase and we're just about to start kind of a bigger scale launch of this new product. 
but that's been a really fun experience. It's been completely different because like I said, this is with, you know, one of my best mates in the whole world and getting to do something like this with such a good friend has been an amazing life hack because I don't know about you, but I like, I find as I'm getting older and everyone's got kids and you know, life gets in the way, like you, it gets harder and harder to chat with your friends. Like, you know, like you and Colleen doing the podcast, like it's such a good excuse to just catch up with a friend and hang out with them and run it. Starting a business with a friend is a great excuse to catch up with them because we chat almost every day now. And it's been amazing because, you know, this is someone who I enjoy spending time with anyway. And now we just get to do more of it. I think, you know, I feel like I always got warned growing up about not starting business with friends because what if it goes bad and you lose a friend over or something. And this is certainly someone who I, I really wouldn't want to lose this friendship over any amount of money. He's someone who I really value. But I think we're both in a position where we're, we're kind of ready to do it together. And it's actually our second attempt. We tried one other time to start a business together and the business went really well, but I had to bow out because I just felt like I wasn't pulling my weight enough. I, I was still he full heads down in junior rockers at that point. And again, we had this idea for a business that we could start together and we started doing it and it was going really, really well. And I could see that he was just doing the bulk of the work and I was still really busy trying to build junior rockers. And I just said to him one day, I was like, look, man, I think I, think I need to bow out of this one because I can see it's going to take off and you're going to end up resenting me because I'm going to just end up riding on your coattails here. And he still runs that business today and it does really, really well. And I do sort of look at it every now and again and go, probably should have, probably should have stuck around, but it feels like we're both in a different place now. And, you know, we've both kind of got the time and the energy to do this thing together. And, and also the, you know, maybe that little bit of experience to know that, Hey, if it was heading down that path, as much as I'm really excited for this you know, new product that we're going to do, I'd back out if I thought it was going to jeopardize the friendship. Yeah, I think that's something I've seen um, is that when, you know, people are not at the same level of uh, commitment to something, it can it can really um, challenge even the strongest friendship. You know, I mean, I've seen so many people, you know, warn people about running a business with their spouse and that's what I do. And I think it's amazing, right? And, you know, I guess, well, I guess Colleen and I are freaking this out. I guess this podcast is, kind of a business, but really it's just an excuse for us to talk to each other every week and make sure that it's like an appointment so that we don't blow it off. Right. Which has been so good. Um, the business side of it is more questionable, like whether we want that or how good of a business it is, but like, that's really the point of it. And, and, it, and like, it sounds like you learned a lot from that early experience and you also had that insight into your own priorities and, and that honesty with yourself to say, you know what, like, I love running this business with him, but like, I'm 25% and he's 100%. And the most important thing here is the friendship. And to continue that would jeopardize the friendship. But now it's interesting that he's still running that business, but now you're starting a new business together. And it sounds like you're, I guess you're still also dipping your toes in this one, because you still got a little bit of consulting going on. But I'm curious if that experience like informed how you set up the new business the software for sleep apnea patients and like whether you spelled out in you know some something about that in your operating agreement or like whether this was a conversation you had when you said like okay are we really going to do this like you know did you have the sort of like come to jesus are we are, are we both the same level of 
uh, intensity and, 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 and passion and time on this. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's exactly the conversation that we had. So initially he pitched me the idea and said, all right, let me just have a little bit of a play around and see if I can knock out something, some sort of like a little MVP that we can just play with. Like a, more, more proof of concept than an MVP, I guess, just to see if it's technically feasible to do the things that we want to kind of set out to do here. And so I did that and I was just sort of doing it on the side. I was just working nights and weekends and the, the bulk of my day was just consulting. And we did that and we, we looked at it, we played with it and we went, this is really cool. I, I think this is something. But also through doing that proof of concept, it made me realize just how much work was involved in what we were what we we're actually setting out to do. It's a, you know when you look at a software project first up and you go, oh, that looks pretty easy, and then you get into the details. Yeah, oh, okay. There's there's a whole bunch of rabbit holes I didn't even see before I started this thing, and it kind of it was really great because it, it just showed me where a lot of those rabbit holes were, and there were more than we realized. But it at least you know gave us that real realization that okay, th- this is going to be hard, and that's okay, but. He's not a software developer. He's he's a sleep scientist, and so at least initially, it's all it's going to be almost one hundred percent my effort. It's going to be input and feedback from him, but then I'm going to need to spend the bulk of the hours on doing this. So, what we ended up deciding was that I would bill him. We're we're fifty fifty partners in this business, but I'm going to actually bill him for my hours at a reduced rate that sort of allows for me earning equity in the business as part of that plus effectively me paying part of my own hourly rate and then him paying the other part and so I, I literally sent him an invoice along with my other consulting clients at the end of each month for the hours that I've been doing on this thing because we're in this phase where it's like hey it, right now it's pretty much all software development as things change and the business grows yeah hopefully we get to the point where it's profitable and we can kind of rework the the agreement but I wouldn't be surprised if going forward it stays kind of developer heavy and his involvement is more in the, the promotion of marketing and he doesn't need to put in the same number of hours that I do. And so we've had that conversation that, you know, we would probably continue with a similar sort of agreement where, you know, we both get paid per hour for the for the hours that we work in the business, but we're also 50-50 owners and we split the profits at the end of the year on whatever is left over after paying for the hours that we've each worked in it. So at the moment, that's the plan, and it's been working really well up to this point. I mean, we're like I said, we're we're only really just about to get to the launch phase, so we're you know we're not uh, it's certainly not profitable at this point. So who knows going forward? But we, at the moment, we have a good plan, and it's working so far. That's a really interesting model, and and I'm struck by how it seems like you came up with something that works for you, right? Like you didn't take a a template of something, or you know, it like going back to what you said about junior rockers where, you know, you felt like you had to act a certain way because this is how a business owner acts. Right. And then, so you adopted that role and it sounds like you have in a very different context, but have applied that, you know, well, in, instead of doing what I think I'm supposed to do, right. Which in this case might be just taking equity instead. It's like, what do I need out of it? What do I want out of this? understanding what the other person wants out of it and then creating something new out of it, uh, cre- creating a new arrangement that that really fits what you need and what you want and is not just something that is sort of off the shelf. Like that like that strikes me as one of the, the big perspective changes of having run that business is that you're like, you're giving yourself permission to make the new business work for you and what's important to you and, and, and what works in your life. 
Yeah, totally. I think that's one of the advantages in being a little bit naive with this stuff because you don't necessarily realize how things are supposed to be done. So you just go and figure out what kind of makes sense for you in your situation. And yeah, that's like, like exactly like you said, like that's that's a sort of unusual situation, but it works for us because of where we're both at in life. And it, it's given me the flexibility to kind of juggle it with where I've been able to start kind of scaling up my work on this new business and scale down the consulting work a little bit because I am making some money out of it, even though it's at a you know, reduced rate. Um, so it's also meant that we've been able to push the product further faster than we were expecting to. So, you know, it's been a really great arrangement. And I sort of look at it and go, I feel like it just makes sense. You know, if someone's going to be spending way more hours in the business, like I think going forward, if the business is is profitable, then we would do exactly the same model, except that instead of me sending him an invoice, I would draw down out of the business each month. And then at the end of each year or whatever the, the reporting period is, we just do the same thing where we split whatever's left between, you know, between us as 50-50 founders of the business. So, yeah, it's a weird one, but I think it just, when we were talking about it, it's like we got to the end of that proof of concept thing and it was like, okay, this is going to take some serious development hours to make this work. I, I can't just not work for, for the next three months and do this. So, you know, what can we do? Let's talk about it. And yeah, so it's fun. You know, he's someone who, we, we, because we've both always run our own business and I don't know a ton of people who are running their own businesses. And so he's someone who we could always just catch up and he would talk to me about what was going on in his businesses and we'd kind of brainstorm things. And I'll do the same thing with him, with my businesses. And now we get to do it together. We get to like have these brainstorming sessions. And then at the end of it, we're like, great. Well, like it's me and you doing this together. It's not me taking that idea and going off and doing it in my own little corner in my world. And so getting to do that with a friend has just been so much fun. It's been, yeah, amazing. So you said it's in, in beta right now. I'm curious, it, like, is there a website people can go to to check it out? There is, yeah, there is. Uh, so we're calling it Sleep HQ. So sleephq.com is the website. So yeah, right now we're basically doing a slow release of accounts. So we're we're uh, we're only releasing a limited number of accounts in every twenty four hour period, just so that we don't kind of you know overwhelm servers and crash things, just to make everything a little easier for for us. One of the advantages that we thought we had in in doing this is that my mate has a very big social media presence. He's built a big YouTube audience over a lot of years doing sleep science and CPAP related videos. So we we were almost sort of cautious of, hey, if we do go and just drop a, a YouTube video about this new product that we're launching, we may have tens of thousands of people go and, you know, hit our website and it's just going to crush it. So we, that's why we've sort of been doing this sort of slow release thing for the last three or four weeks now. And we've just been kind of building confidence in the number of users we can sign up per day and per week to the point where we're, we're, now, we're now pretty much ready to start actually marketing this thing properly. So uh, yeah, sleephq.com is the website. So people go there, They depending on how many accounts we've released in the day, there, there may be accounts available. It's a, definitely a, a niche product going for CPAP users, but there's a lot of them out there. And, you know, Nick, my mate, has just so much experience and such an audience in there. It kind of, to be honest, it kind of felt like when he pitched me the idea, like looking at guys like Justin Jackson and Transistor and stuff, where you see these combinations of, someone who's really great at marketing and someone who's really good at products coming together and it just works. And it kind of felt like that where he, he already had this big audience that he's built in a very niche industry and I've got the skills to build the product out. And 
I absolutely have that problem that just about every software developer has where you want to build the thing, but you don't really want to market and sell the thing. Like I've built a number of products over the years where I've done the work and got them out and then I sort of market it and then I get bored or I go and I do something different. And I, you know, doing something like this where you can, I can just go heads down on the code and then I can go, hey, mate, it's your responsibility to make sure people know about it. You go and make them sign up. It just feels like this perfect combination. So it, it felt like a lot of things coming together at the right time for the two of us to do this together. So um, yeah, we'll, we'll see. But early signs have been very promising. So yeah, pretty pretty excited about it. Well, that's really exciting stuff. And you know, I, I love that you know he already had this audience, and and you're building something for that audience, right? You know, it's what we were talking about about the the surfing analogy. Talking about Justin again. You know, yes, it's a niche audience, but yes, niche audiences are a good thing, like because it's very engaged. And I mean. If you can't sleep, like that's a very serious problem that, you know, people experience on a daily basis and they might be willing to pay to be able to, they are willing to pay to sleep better. Indeed. I say this as someone who was currently very jet lagged from visiting Colleen recently in California, like (laughs) sleep is important. So, um, so yeah, I mean, there's so many lessons in that I am, I'm so excited to see where sleep HQ takes you. And it has been an absolute delight talking to you. I feel like we could talk all day. So perhaps I should just say thank you. Adam Palazzi, the exited founder of Junior Rockers, self-taught developer, current consultant, and co-founder of Sleep HQ. Adam, thank you so much for coming on Software Social. Thanks so much for having me. That was really fun. Huge thanks to all of our listeners who've become software socialites and support our show. Chris from Chipper CI, the daringly handsome Kevin Griffin, and Mike from Gently Used Domains, who has a nice personality, Dave from Recut, Max of Online or Not, Stefan from Talk to Stefan, Brendan Andrade of Brightbits, Team Tuple, Alex Hillman from The Tiny MBA, Rami from Hovercode and Rocket Gems, Jane and Benedict from UserList, Kendall Morgan, Ruben Gomez of Signwell, Corey Haynes of Swipewell, Mike Wade of Crowd Sentry, Nate Ritter of Roomsteals, Anna Mast of SubscribeSense, Jeff Roberts from Outsetta, Justin Jackson, MegaMaker, Jack Ellis and Paul Jarvis from Fathom Analytics, Matthew from Appointment Reminder, Andrew Culver at Bullet Train, John Coster, Alex of Corso Systems, Richard from Stunning, Josh the Annoyingly Pragmatic Founder, Ben from ConsentKit, John from Credo and Editor Ninja, Cam Sloan, Michael Copper of Nusi Proposals, Chris from URL Box, Callie of Toslet, Greg Park from Trait Lab, Adam from Rails Autoscale, Lana and Alex from Recapsi, Joe Mazzalotti of RailsDevs.com, Proud Mama from Applenet LLC, Anna from Cradle, Monsef from Ruby on Mac, Steve of Be Inclusive, Simon Bennett of Snapshooter Backups, Josh Smith of Keyhero.io, Jesper Christensen of Form Backend, Matthew of Works Cited, Chris of JetBoost.io, Daryl Shannon of Dokamatic, Larabelles, a community for Larabel developers underrepresented due to their gender. Brendan from Feederloop, Pascal from Sharpen.page, Lynn Romick from Convini, Arvid Call, James Sowers from Castaway.fm, Jessica Malnick, Damian Moore of Audio Audit Podcast Checker, Eldon from Nodal Studios, Mitchell Davis from RecruitKit.